The first reading today is from the prophecy of Daniel, uh, chapter 7, um, beginning at the verse 13. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading uh, is from the Gospel according to, to Mark uh, 10, verses 35 to 45. And you'll find it on page uh, 1014 in the, in the Pew Bibles. It, it relates to the request of uh, James and John. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to, to do for us Whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left, in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Could you drink the cup I drink or be baptised with the baptism I am baptised with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptised uh, with the baptism I am baptised with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. And when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave for all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. It's very nice to be with you. Thank you, Bruce, for the, for the welcome. And uh, nice to be among uh, lots of people who are friends of mine here. So good to be with you. And, and a very familiar uh, service to me, very different to the latest services. I grew up as the son of an Anglican minister. 
So I grew up with the traditional uh, prayer book service. I can re pretty much recite every prayer off by heart. And so it's a lo lovely, familiar uh, sort of rhythm to the, to the day for me to, to, uh, be for, uh, to come back to that. So thank you for having me here this morning. I'm going to pray and then we'll jump into to Mark chapter 10. Heavenly Father, thank you for, for bringing every one of us here today. Uh, you know what's going on in our lives you know uh, the challenges we have, you know the things that are going well, you know the sadnesses. And Lord, I just pray that you'd come near to us this morning as we think about who you are and the difference you've made to the world and the difference you make to our lives. Please speak powerfully to us. May your spirit be next to each of our hearts as we think about what true greatness is. Be with us this morning, Lord. Amen. I always knew I'd be famous. <laughs> always knew I'd be famous. This is the first line of a really great book by a guy called Neil McCormick. This is, this is him. Uh, and you probably haven't heard of him, despite the optimism of the opening line of his book, uh, although it is sort of ironic too. So, Neil McCormick was a friend, he was a school friend of uh, Bono from the very popular Irish rock group U2. Uh, and they were good mates at school and they both had dreams of being stars. Both of them were in bands, so they were sort of you know, jostling for, for, for uh, success in similar fields. Uh, both of them had promising starts to their music careers. But the book tracks the meteoric rise of Bono, while McCormick kind of lurches from one disaster to the next. And the two lives, the two, they sort of intersect across the years. They stayed friends. And it's sort of a very funny kind of reminder of just how far McCormick has fallen from his dreams, how far short he's fallen from his dreams. Bono's like a cruel reminder of that. And uh, it's a sort of funny book. But all the way through, in quite, quite searing honesty, you get from McCormick, you get a deep need to be noticed, to be significant, to leave a mark, to have the trappings of fame and celebrity, to be remembered, to be considered one of the greats. It's very much part of this story. And it's, it's at the same time kind of funny, but also a bit sad. But it makes you wonder, at least when I started reading this book, what does it mean to be truly great? I mean, what do you think of when you think of people who've, what you consider to be, have achieved success? When you look up to someone, perhaps, or want to be like someone, what type of person are they, generally? Do you think, for instance, perhaps, of a great statesman? Someone who's left her mark in history, who's negotiated treaties and led peace movements, top of the tree academically, but equally at home in the Oval Office or at the stands at the footy. Is that the sort of person you think of? They're brilliant. When we mention greatness, perhaps your thoughts might turn to your favourite movie star, who's stunned audiences across decades of charisma and style and the ability to adapt to different roles. When you watch that person on the screen, you forget you're even watching a film. 
might be a successful business person perhaps who's in control of the boardroom and has a real presence, can command a speech or want their people to crawl across cut glass to achieve whatever the, the goal they've set. They've been successful over many years. They're a powerhouse. Or, I don't know, maybe it's an author, your favourite author who can make you cry within the space of a paragraph. I have to admit there are almost all of those uh, examples of things that I've thought of when I've considered greatness. And there have been times when I've sort of daydreamed of a different version of one of those things. I'm sure you have your own daydream like that. Everyone does, don't they? But here's the thing, though. When we start to hang around Jesus, we can find that our visions of greatness are deeply challenged. We discover that we're asked to rethink our view of the world, ourselves and other people. And the passage that we, we heard read from Mark essentially gives us a simple question and a profound answer. Simple question, a profound answer. It takes us right to the heart of who Jesus is and who he expects us to be if we're going to follow him. And like a lot of things that Jesus says, if we look at them carefully and we take them seriously, we might find them a bit confronting. It could make us a bit uncomfortable. It certainly does me anyway. So in this part of Mark's Gospel, James and John approach Jesus with the question in verse 37. They essentially ask him, when you become king, can we have the best seats in the house? Can we sit on either side of you? In Jesus' day, things weren't all that different to today in many respects. Uh, James and John, who've been hanging around Jesus for as long as just about anyone, show that what they really want is to be noticed. They want to be up the front. They want to be ahead of the others in the pecking order. They want influence. They want prestige. They want power. Can we sit on your right and on your left? The other disciples you might have noticed there at the end weren't happy about this, they were really annoyed, they were indignant, it says. Not because they thought it was a bad idea, but it was because they didn't get in first. They were cranky about that. You see, it's important to remember what the, the disciples were anticipating at this point in the story. What were they anticipating? Well, the Jews had been, as you know, waiting for centuries for the promised Messiah to come. And during that time, they'd been overrun by a whole lot of different empires. They were currently under the rule of Rome. And the nation had faced humiliation after humiliation. They were looking to God to send a Messiah to crush their enemies and restore Israel to its rightful place. That's what their hopes rested on, conspicuous public victory and justice for the oppressed Israel. And it was going to be kind of superhero style, right? nothing subtle about this. This is where it was going to go. The whole book of Mark is trying to establish the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. And the disciples are understandably excited about this. They're going to be part of the action. They're going to be front and centre. It's worth paying attention to the way Mark constructs his gospel because Mark is the gospel more than any of the others that, can, that repeatedly shows the disciples to be kind of clueless when it comes to understanding who Jesus really was. They know he's someone special, but over and over again, they get it horribly wrong. 
out of the 16 chapters, you get right in the middle, chapter 8, you get this high point, do you remember, where Jesus says to Peter, who do you say that I am? And at that point, Peter says, you are the Christ. So it's a climactic moment. You are the Christ. He's got it. He's the Messiah. He's nailed it. Or has he? You see, Jesus then immediately starts to, about talking, starts to talk about going up to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. Now, hang on a sec. You're the Christ. Yes, we've got this. I'm going up to Jerusalem to suffer and die. This is a complete contradiction in terms. The suffering servant Messiah. It's unthinkable to these guys. And Mark arranges his material in a pattern. So he does it three times, at 8.31, at 9.31, and then at 10.32 in our passage, where Jesus says, I'm going up to Jerusalem to die. And, they, and each time they show by their reaction, they don't have a clue what he's talking about. In our one, can we have the best seats in the house? And then we get to Jesus' reply, the great reversal. When Jesus gives his reply to their question, he reflects a different kind of Messiah and a different kind of greatness. He begins to tell them who he really is. And his reply to their question takes us straight into upside down town, as, my, as a song my kids used to sing when they were little. In upside down town. Uh, you get, it's a radical, you've got to get, understand this, this is a complete inversion of what they're expecting. Our world, the worlds of the disciples as well, is turned on its head. Because Jesus essentially says, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to suffer. You're going to have to be a servant. It's not really the glorious path they were expecting. Following the request of James and John for what's essentially the corporate box, the front row seats, the access all areas pass, Jesus says to them, hang on a sec, can you drink the cup that I drink and be baptised with my baptism? See, these, image, these are images, especially the drinking of the cup, of sharing in or taking on suffering. And you can see James and John go, yeah, 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 we can, yeah, sure, no problem, we got that, whatever. They're kind of not quite in on what he's talking about. They're probably thinking about a few battle scars on the way to messianic glory. And then Jesus takes them aside, all of them, and says this to them. You know those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. You know what he's referring to, right? They see it every day around them. The might of the Roman Empire with its grand buildings, the ruthless machinery of power. And it was intoxicating to think that following Jesus, the following the Messiah, they could get in on that sort of action. But disappointingly, Jesus says, not so with you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man is living like this. So this ought to be how we ought to be. Of course, Jesus leads by example. He hangs out at the wrong end of town. He spends most of his time preaching and teaching in remote areas. And one of his final acts was to wash the feet of his disciples. This is not the, the Messiah they were expecting, but it gives us a pattern. 
It tells us something important about who he is. I have a good friend, uh, who, who I had a good friend, he died a few years ago, but he was a minister of a church in Manhattan, in New York. And the congregation there was a fascinating congregation. Two-thirds of the people were homeless people, but there was a really sort of interesting mix because of where he was of Broadway musicians and newsreaders and surgeons, a kind of interesting community. But Colin, my friend, tells the story of someone in the congregation called Frank who had ongoing mental health problems and he had a terrible physical disorder in the form of a, a really ugly growth in his left foot. It was op- an open wound. It looked like a kind of dirty cork. It was very unpleasant. He didn't wear shoes and Colin used to say Frank would sort of lie on the chairs up the back and occasionally get a grunt out of him, but that was about all. He said there was a young social worker in his congregation. Her name was Janice. And Janice used to meet with Frank every week, a couple of times a week, two or three times a week, and she would dress and wash and dress this wound of Frank's over and over again. And Colin says this about, about this situation. He said, Janice's tenderness in caring for the street person was difficult to, who was difficult to be near because of the stench which enveloped him spoke volumes of God's love for Frank. Her compassion and transparent faith began to penetrate dark areas of Frank's life where my frequent words seemed to fail. Colin says that she did this week after week, month after month, and interestingly, Frank never thanked her once for this work she was doing. Greatness, according to Jesus, greatness. Martin Luther King once said that anyone can be great because anyone can serve. I think of people like Di who do the soup kitchen here every week, week after week after week. Greatness, according to Jesus. Jesus lives that life and then he calls people to follow him into sort of costly, sacrificial service. You see, that's the kingdom that Jesus brings in. And it isn't really until he rises from the dead and God's spirit comes into the the hearts of his disciples that they really understand. And it's at that point that they do embark on lives of suffering and service. See, the cross makes every bit of difference in this. It's the cross that makes the difference. There's that beautiful hymn or poem, if you like, in, in Paul's letter to the Philippians. You know it well, I'm sure. Where he says... In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each to the interests of others. And in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage or grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The shameful death of Jesus posed this question to his followers. Was he maybe not as great as we thought? Or, post-resurrection, does greatness itself have to be redefined to include a willingness to lower yourself for the sake of others? See, for Christians, once Jesus is raised from the dead, the answer is obvious. True greatness involves humility. Because this is how God acts. All of a sudden, and this is a 
an earth-shattering reality, all of a sudden the, the high point becomes the low point. Because in submitting to a shameful death on the cross, Jesus had redefined greatness by lifting up the lowly and bringing down the high. And the event profoundly changes the world. Here's um, uh, David Bentley Hart, who's this crazy, brilliant historian and theologian, who talks about how, how the world changed because of this. And in the ancient world, he says, in, the, in a world that believes, the ancient world that is, that at the end of the day, the index of human value and of moral truth are degrees of privilege, power, pedigree, the right to own others, to govern others, to kill others. The notion that the highest value of all begins in resigning all of that. It's absolutely shocking in the ancient world. Humility is not a virtue in the ancient world until Jesus comes along. And then Hart goes on to say that humility may be the singular greatest offence to the moral sensibility of the ancient world and to humans in general and the greatest revolution in our understanding of the moral good as a social and personal practice. The high point becomes the low point. The low point becomes the high point. It changed the world and what we value. And it was Jesus' death that made all the difference in that. I remember interviewing a very uh, accomplished professor. So, so I'll go back from that. A very accomplished professor, John Swinton, who's an author of many books. He spent me- much of his life, much of his professional life, working with people with dementia and also with disabled people. And I asked him about working with people on the fringes, on the margins. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He said, you know... You often hear that Jesus worked and operated with people in the fringes, the margins, the outcasts, the prostitutes, the poor, the tax collectors, the rough and ready, the forgotten. But he said, this is a misunderstanding, he reckons, because if it's God who is there among this people, if it's just Jesus who, who is God, then all of a sudden it's no longer the margins, is it? If God's there, it's not the margins. And that changed his perspective on what what it is. He didn't feel like he was working on the margins. In fact, he felt like he was working at the centre of where things. If we have understood the cross, if Jesus really is our Lord, and probably only then, does it make sense to follow him, to follow his examples, to wash the feet of others, if you like? What does it mean to be truly great? According to Jesus, it is becoming a servant to others, the place of great honour. That's how it's meant to be with all of us. It will impact, if we take this on, how we view ourselves and others. It will impact the way we're going to lead others if that's what we're called to do. It will affect the way we, what we look for and what we value in, in leaders. Activities in the everyday as well as activities at church become not a, a place of self-fulfillment but to serve It will affect the people we're prepared to give our time to. It will impact the dignity we will afford to the unpopular, to the aged, to our friends, to people we find difficult. It's one of the great beauties of church, isn't it? That we're kind of called to even be patient with and loving towards people we wouldn't otherwise generally warm to. When that works well, I always think that's one of the great geniuses of the church community. It'll have an impact on how we are at work, the way we relate in our marriages, the type of things we bring to friendships, 
genuine love and true greatness comes through service. Service is at the heart of the gospel. Uh, C.S. Lewis, very famous, of course, and favourite writer of, and most well-known for the Narnia series. But also a great uh, apologist for the Christian faith, having been an atheist at, 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 uh, for much of his life. He wrote a book called The Great Divorce, where he, it's just a kind of speculation on the afterlife, on life beyond the grave. And there's a, there's a brilliant moment in it that I've, I've never been able to forget, where the narrator, the kind, of, the kind of key person in the story, arrives in heaven, and he's given an introductory tour by one of the more experienced residents. Okay? So they're being toured around heaven, he's getting to know the, know the ropes. And at one point they become aware of a great fuss and an imminent arrival of someone of obvious celebrity status. It's like a huge procession, like a ticker tape parade's coming. And they you know, become aware of this and they're sort of, what's going on here? And all of this, he's told, is in honour of one woman who's been paraded through the streets. And the, the, the character, the narrator, asks his companion, oh, is, is this someone who is of great importance on the earth? Perhaps a famous writer or leader or queen? Oh, it's someone you won't have heard of, comes the reply. Well, she seems to be a person of particular importance, says the new guy. And, he says, and the guide says, oh, oh, yeah, she's one of the great ones. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith. And she lived at Golders Green. You have heard, haven't you, he says, that fame in this country and fame on earth are two very quite different things. Sarah Smith had been an unheralded lady in a small village who'd spent her life loving and serving other people. Everyone who came into her orbit, whether it was the delivery boy or the, the girl at the local store or even an animal that crossed her path, she treated with great care and attention and love, flowing out of her love for God and her response to God. Greatness, according to Jesus. Well, just two words of encouragement to finish. If, like me, you read this passage and you start to feel a bit inadequate and that really sacrificial service doesn't exactly characterise your life, uh, remember two things. Jesus expects us to take him seriously at this point. He also shows that how the seemingly impossible becomes possible through his spirit. And that he can bring change even to me, even to you. And the second thing is, and this is the counterintuitive but brilliant thing about Christianity. It's the great paradox of the Christian faith. That Jesus says the fullest life possible comes from service, in fact. The fullest life possible comes from service. And the funny thing is, I find this amusing... That 21st century psychology and kind of sociology is just starting to catch up with this ancient wisdom. Through my work, I sometimes go to the happiness conference. There's a whole industry around happiness. And, and they now, just now, fairly recently, starting to speak in these terms of the huge difference in life satisfaction that comes from being less self-focused and more other people-centred. It's really interesting. It's not news really, but they're sort of catching up on this. 
And Hugh McKay, some of you will know, Australia's most loved and respected social researcher, who spent his whole professional life observing people in their homes and in their work and talking to people. He wrote a book called The Good Life the other few weeks, few, a couple of years ago. The Good Life. And he observed what he thinks is the answer to a fulfilling life. And the punchline of the book can be summarised in this quote. He says, No one can promise you that a life lived for others will bring a deep sense of satisfaction. But it's certain that nothing else will. Isn't that fascinating? Can't promise you you'll get a fulfillment life from this, but I'll tell you what, you won't get it from anywhere else than this, li- this life lived for other people. You won't get it anywhere else. You won't get it from fame, you won't get it from money, you won't get it from celebrity status, power. You'll only get it from a, a life that is a life of service to others. And that, of course, is the life that Jesus modelled. It's the life that this passage calls us to. We should feel encouraged by that. It's the old Christian story of losing your life in order to find it. You know, it's what we're called to do. Give up your life and in fact you get all this other, you get, you get your life thrown in. It might be good to start with small steps. Setting out to love and serve and putting our interests aside. We can all do that. See where it takes us. Let me finish with a prayer, which is written by a friend of mine. Lord, protect us from being a people who are better known for theology above humility. Save us from being a congregation of privilege without duty, of wealth without generosity. Deliver us from being too busy to help the sick, elderly or lonely, or too professional to do the mundane. Free us from our culture and bind us to your path. Help us to notice each other, to value each other, and to prefer the good of the other. Teach us to honour those from whom we get 